This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Tim Massa from Watchbox. Tim, you are a returning guest. How are you? Hey, it's good to be here. I mean, this is this is at least, I don't know, round a million for us. Tim and I have known each other for a number of years. And I remember growing up, my dad had a Austin Healey in the garage. He may have driven it once or twice before he sold it when I was older. And I, you know, I growing up in Southern California. It's not uncommon to know people who have classic cars that are either their daily drive or, you know, they have in their garage or something like that. And what I recognize is this is a very strange concept to most of the world. The idea that you have a toy car, often an older car, like in your garage, in your extra space. And I remember really realizing this in a place like Hong Kong, where it was explained to me by someone there who was a local, hey, you you know, you know, Yankees have your garages and your space for cars. We don't have that. That's why we have watches, because it's kind of the same thing that I can fit in my uh, my apartment. Yeah, well, it's I, I, I'm an apartment dweller myself, but I've repurposed Watchbox's basement carports as my personal collection space. There you so, go. <laughs> I've turned the parking garage into a bit of a... a an auto fiefdom inside of the watch world. Um, I would love to do one of those vintage rallies. Really? Yes. With breakdowns and all. Absolutely. 100%. I mean, the breakdown part is such a real element of it. You, you can't discount. It's not like, oh, well, if you break down, there's some help. It's like, when are you going to break down? What is it going to cost? This one gentleman who came to the show brought seven cars, seven <laughs> backups and alternatives and things like that on a trailer. The The expense involved is so grand with all the, first of all, people have to take time off of whatever their lives are, then bring these cars and the mechanics and stuff like that. I guess what I like about it is you get to see very wealthy people essentially playing with toys the same way that like little children would on a, on a different budget level. But the 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 context is just literally we're, we're we're playing, and I think that the luxury area at its best is a bastion for adult play. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, without a doubt. Watches are toys, cars are toys. I mean, you know, obviously past a certain point, you need basic transportation, but we're so far past that when we're talking about seventy-year-old Chryslers. So you know, that's that's kind of my idea of how I would like to play in the sandbox. I'm too big for the sandbox. Uh, fortunately, now I get to drive and watches. The, the ones that are the most enjoyable are, are the ones that are the one that you associate with some sort of play acting, either going to a collection event or a watch show or explaining it to friends at dinner and making them converts. Like you, you have to have playmates for it to be more fun. And I think that's true whether it's watches or cars. That's why even when we get pushback from friends, we still try to convert them with our watches because we really want them to be part of it. Not only does it make it more fun, but it makes us feel less crazy. You know, something I've been doing over the past several months, I think you may have seen me do this and maybe you'll do it as well. I think you've definitely done it, is I'm recasting the way that we categorize this entire pursuit. I think that for many years, you know, words like consumer, collector, buyer were applied to us. And those are, of course, true. But the term that I've tried to use as much as possible is hobby. Yeah. One thing is that you spend money on your hobby. You make money at your job. So that first clarifies, hey, everyone, let's try trying to hyper-focus about making money or something like that. That's something I want to talk about in a little bit. But more importantly, like you said, it is a place to have fun and, you, you know, you have to have fun with your friends. It's too lonely to have fun alone. And so to explain this hobby and all the weird nuances that it has and all the different ways people come about it and all the different ways people enjoy it, you have to say it's 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 sort of adult play and uh, role play. You know, like you said, you you wear a watch from an activity that you like to do or would like to do. And then you and then you you look at the watch on your wrist and you imagine that you're doing that or that you could be doing it. And that's very much like when we were little kids, you know, dressing up in a certain way or imagining we were fighting in some war or something like that. 
even though we're older and more mature, it's it's pretty much identical behavior. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I have been a strict hobbyist because to go by your definition, I have lost money on every car and every watch I've ever owned except for one. My JLC Tourbillon, I bought and I sold it for the same price. But everything else cost money to own, even if it was just the cost of maintaining. Because Oh my God, I spent so much money on old Audis. And I guess that's a lesson learned the hard way, but it was a labor of pure love. And with my watches, look, you don't get any of the money back that you spend on service and upkeep. It's a sunken cost. It keeps the watch running, but it doesn't add anything to the value. But you do it because it's the right thing to do out of a love for the machinery and a respect for the engineering. You're showing respect to someone else's handiwork. And my hobby has always just to be sort of a sustainer of these old cars and these watches. I don't always keep them forever. I don't have a big collection of cars or watches. They usually find their way to the next owner at some point, but that custodianship, the intermediate time, I really enjoy. I think one of the things that you and I don't think about enough is how cool it is to have a job with our hobby that is, of course, rare. Because sometimes I think we look at other people in this space, especially the people that are coming to us buying the watches, and we're like, wow, they have a lot of money or they have a lot of other things. And yet we don't realize they envy us because we get to live and breathe our our hobby or i.e. something fun every day. Whereas a lot of people out there who are working are not having fun at their job. And I think we take that for granted. There's headaches, of course. Don't get me wrong. It's it's not all not all games. But on a regular basis, what you've described, going to these events and driving and playing with watches and things like that, and of course, what I do, is we get to play a lot. And and I and more and more over the years, I've come to appreciate at least that. You know what I mean? Without a doubt. I would say, first of all, I have a privileged position here. I'm, I'm lucky. I don't live day to day on the sales floor. Those guys are my heroes. They pay my salary. Total respect there. But realistically now, in eight years of doing this, it'll be eight years soon, I can count the number of truly bad days I've had on one hand, and maybe not even all five fingers of one hand. Whereas other jobs I've had, like the military, my first job out of college in a law firm, like it was like one-to-one, good day, bad day, good day, bad day. And there were days I just dreaded going to work. I haven't had that feeling of dread or loathing on my way to work since I've been doing this, and that is a genuine privilege. Now, how do you sort of these days give therapy to the individuals that come to you and they say, Tim, it seems like what you're doing is so much fun. How do I get into something like that? I mean, both of us have to feel this on a regular basis. But what do you say to people that, you know, at least from the outside, want to dabble into the watch space? What's your what's your sort of latest advice for these these folks? I would tell them there's lots of opportunities if they want to write articles freelance, but I would also say they've got to really want it. When I left the military, my first inkling that I could make or at least attempt to make a job out of the watch space was when I went to 47th Street and I introduced myself to a bunch of people who did not want to be introduced to new folks. It was a very closed world. It was extremely cloistered, family, clannish inward facing. So it was difficult for them to warm up to an outsider. And I was relentless in trying to not make friends with them, but proved them A, that I knew my stuff and B, that I could be an asset to their companies selling used watches. And so eventually I had one guy who was a Russian American and he said, look, I'll give you $15 an article. And if I like your stuff, then we'll step up the rate later. And I said, okay, accepted. And I eventually wrote $115 articles for this guy, copy for his site. Oh, I've been there back in the day. That was the going rate. Mm -hmm. I sent that guy a a bill for $1,500. And I'm saying these people who want to dabble, do you have that kind of motivation to work 10, 12 hours a day writing $15 articles? I'm not saying that would be your in or your point of entry. That was mine. But how badly do you want it? Because there's a line of people who want to be in this business and don't realize that, especially when you're breaking in, it is work and it will require an effort. I'm going to I'm gonna sort of echo what you say, but sort of refocus and recast it a little bit. And, and yeah. I think you're saying it without knowing it. But this industry, 
is hard to break into, right? Like, and in order to break in, you have to make a name for yourself. You have to show that you're serious. And one way to show you're serious is to, you know, do a bunch of grunt work for low pay. Other ways is to uh, be, uh, you know, a, a radical rethinker or a crazy marketer or an amazing designer. But it takes some type of exceptionalism to break into this space. Once you're in, um, people tend to be pretty loyal, right? Like we see a lot of brands <laughs> that ride on momentum for far yes. too long. <laughs> Same with employees at brands. But once you're in, it's like, oh, Tim, he's in the watch industry. He's a known commodity here. You know, he's he's here for good, right? It's like it's like the Swiss, they don't want to support you, but they also hate the idea of you leaving. They're like, we're not going to hire you, but please don't leave our industry. Oh, yeah. Well, the funny thing is how different I looked when I first left the military. I cut my hair very short. Uh, my clothes were different. Like all this stuff to the point where I looked different enough that people who shunned me in the beginning have approached me like they're my oldest friend at events. I'm like, you don't remember, do you? <laughs> I'm like, you think you're meeting me for the first time. <laughs> and that was kind of funny. It's happened a couple of times. Wait, wait, I think we both have stories about this. You're talking about shunning at the beginning. Like, give some more anecdotes there. What does that mean? I mean, the door that shuts in your face, the phone that hangs up, the person at an event who turns away when you try to extend a hand, like that sort of thing. And and normally these would be like figures of speech, but I mean them literally. And again, none of those people remembered. And maybe it's to my advantage, but it's also to my great amusement because of the way they later introduced themselves. <laughs> it was clear they didn't know. You and I... You know, we are information snobs for sure, but we are more or less humble guys. I think compared to a lot of people in the sort of American watch space, you, you and I would come across as very down to earth. But, you know, this is not an industry that that always sort of celebrates that. How how have you over time sort of matured as, uh, I, I guess you could say, you know, I want to say diplomat because, again, you and I have both had situations where we've been quite offended, realistically, at the behaviors of people who aren't trying to offend us, but just like they exist sort of a different cultural basis. Like, I guess the question is, you know, compared to the beginning, how do you feel you've changed from a from from a personality, a cultural perspective? Like, I've I thought about this a lot, you know, because sometimes I look at my work from, you know, I'm doing I've been doing this for more than 15 years now, and like you know, articles I wrote about in 2008. I was like, is that a different person? You know, it's so weird. <laughs> You know, it's funny because I've I've been doing video for a lot of the time. Even the stuff from eight years ago, I look at it and I'm like, wow, I looked so young. But, uh, you know, I, I would say that realistically, um, there is a confidence that comes with success. And I, I mean that in the best possible way, not conceit, but a sort of self-possession and assurance that makes me, I, I guess, a little bit more maybe normal when I'm interacting with people, you know, who just inspire awe. And, and I'm able to do my job better that way, but also an awareness that this can be a very elitist and exclusive and um, kind of challenging hobby to approach. And so I've become a lot more sensitive to kind of leaving the door open to new people who don't have the budget or the knowledge or the time to be as engaged with the industry as I am. And I see, you know, you use that term diplomat. I try to make sure that I still have something to say to that person, even as, you know, 90% of my day probably involves watches priced above $20,000. I still think it's important to remember the collector I was on the outside looking in and realizing how much I would have loved just like an open hand or a chance to find someone who was already in who could relate to me and welcome me in and, and do it in a non-judgmental way. And, and look, the industry still has that issue. It has need for so much talent right now. I think every brand we work with, every company, provided that money is available to them, you know, could use more hands. And, uh, you know, blog to watch we're looking for some people right now. I'm working with some others looking for some people. There's, like many industries, this desire to hire. And one of the things that the industry has not done, which I think is really a shame, um, and I'd like to see change, is bring more people in-house at brands that you and I would consider sort of a watch lover and enthusiast. And I guess the, the thing I'm trying to say is maybe it's a disruptive revolution to start staffing a lot more watch brands and publications and retailers with people like you and me that just love watches. 
we're doing because of the love of watches. It's not for, it's not like, you know, it's just another sales job or another marketing job or another brand management job or, or God forbid, another luxury job. It's because you like watches. And because here's the thing, think about it. a lot of these brands, especially when it comes to like what models to make, there's no like strategy. It's like a gut instinct. And who better than an enthusiast or collector has that gut instinct for what that brand should do next. And so I wonder if the Swiss would be, you know, again, financially in the, in the right to think about vastly changing their hiring practice, stop being so focused on hiring, you know, the people down the street and the people they know and the people from other culture. And consider the wisdom of having an outsider that loves watches maybe run one of your businesses. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's it's certainly worthwhile in terms of communication because I find some of the least effective advertising in any industry I've ever encountered has been advertising inside of the watch industry. And we're way past the point where a billboard or a page in a magazine is the standard fare for promoting your product. And there are a lot of people, whether they're Chinese or American or they're deeply ingrained in South African culture or Indian culture, who just have a better sense of the sentiment on the ground, what kind of social media people are looking at, what's culturally cool as opposed to, you know, sanctified and blessed by Switzerland, and getting those watchmakers, you know, not watchmakers, but watch enthusiasts around the world who really have their finger on the pulse of an area and the watch culture in the region. I mean, there's always going to be a standard of quality control. There's a lot of social media out there, and it's not all created equal. But bringing in the people who really understand an area and the culture and the cultural affinity for watches, because every area relates to watches in a different way culturally, bringing in those locals who understand it is definitely a better idea than just sending, you know, your best Swiss guy to hire four standard marketing assistants in America or China or South Africa or India. Yeah, definitely bringing in people who are from the watch community and, and trying to make them a part of the fabric of the brand is a whole lot more sensible in this age than trying to find a bunch of ad folks or watch industry old hands and expecting them to integrate into the culture. You know, I was it's funny how this sort of segues into another thing I was thinking about. And this was, who are some of the worst ever watch brand managers of the modern era? Because we always think about oh. who are the good ones. Yeah. You know, people always talk about, you know, Bever and, and, you know, others. And none of these people are perfect human beings. They all have downsides as well. But the idea is, you know, are they good watch brand managers? Do they, do they lead well? Are they successful? Are they charismatic? But also there's, like I said, the other side. And sometimes it's not just a bad person. It's just the wrong fit right? Like at a brand, you know, I know he actually wasn't a bad guy, but when, when Terry Natoff was, at oh, Zender, I was, I was going to say, you know, so polarizing. It's, it's infamous. It's infamous. First name. And I know the picture in your mind too. It's that picture of him with the Falcon on the Island with the belly dancers. <laughs> <laughs> you know what you're thinking about. Oh, it I know it. He's wearing all white. Yeah. I mean, I mean, look, the industry has had its ups and downs with, 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 personalities and spending. There's been a lot of, look, a lot of the scandal is not public. You know, there's a lot of um, <laughs> human resources abuses or appropriation of funds and inventory, a lot of that stuff going on as well. But this industry over the past 30 years has a pretty bad or mediocre track record with finding people to to run it or be managers. Um, is there anything in common with these poor choices that you've seen? You know, like, well, like I'm trying to figure out if we could give any lessons to industry. Like, don't continue to do this. I would also say another thing is that when you have a smaller brand, in general, the owner has to be the person running the brand. Like, it has to be the creative head, has to be the source of energy and momentum. It's very difficult, especially with a smaller brand. And I'm not talking about LVMH and Swatch and Richemont here, but there have been a lot of independents that have been pretty unstable because the people running the company are not the primary investors. So you've got these investors who are in it to make money. And then you've got a bunch of business hands who were brought in to run the thing. And I really do think you need someone like a Max Busser or a Romain Gauthier or, you know, Francois Paul Journe, uh, who has a major stake in the company and is also responsible for running it. There have been some watchmakers who've run companies into the ground. Don't get me wrong. It doesn't always work out. But I do think when you've got people who are brought in as like quotidian administrators, 
that's a really bad formula for a small brand. It's got to be some sort of dynamic force like Richard Mille. It's got to be someone who's invested in the brand personally. Uh, and then for the bigger brands, it, it helps to have people who've come up from the ranks. You could create an all-star team of folks who like left Richemont and Swatch companies over the years and went on to bigger and better things in the indie brands. You can't find a whole lot of all-stars who arrived from elsewhere and turned out to be a great success. So I'm, I like to take sort of all that wisdom and trying to distill it down into rules. And what I'm hearing, and something I've said before, is when a creative person has to get approval or, to, or needs to present justification for making a creative idea, that's a hurdle that no one can overcome. No creative person can say, I promise you it's going to make money or it's guaranteed to work. Creativity is about experimentation, seeing how things go. So you need to have someone who's empowered to make creative decisions without having to get someone else to okay it because they'll say no every single time. And they also have to have the creative vision. So they need to have the freedom, i.e. the money, as well as that, that, that creative spark to try new things. And right now, you have a lot of people who control money that are essentially from like a banking background. And for them, uh, you, you couldn't possibly spend money without first doing a, a study and, and, and to weigh the odds carefully because you need to make good decisions. And what they, what they seem to miss every single time is this is the creative industry. There will be hits and there will be misses. You, 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 you simply don't know how the market's going to respond until it's been in the market for a few years. That's, that's, that's what's necessary. And the Japanese know this implicitly. When you go to Japan, one of the things you notice is, is the diversity of products. They have so many products on the market, more than any culture will ever need. But because they know that the only way to really test whether or not something works is to put it in the market and see what the consumer does. And these are, and Japanese hate making risky decisions, right? These are very calculated business people, very, very calculated. But they've come to the conclusion seemingly that you just need to experiment. And when you look at Casio and Citizen and Seiko, what you see are companies that are, are vividly prolific sometimes in the variety that they're coming out with and the experimentation they're doing. And yet the Swiss kind of scoff at this behavior and end up sitting on their hands and doing nothing. And so, uh, again, I, I think that it's good for us who have such veterans in this to give some advice back to the brands, but I'm just sort of trying to place it in, in, in terms that they understand and, and why it's a good idea to embrace experimentation versus be fearful of it. Yeah, well, you know, the thing is, when you look at a lot of these bigger brands, you have a lot of the same problems you have with absentee ownership of smaller brands. You know, Richemont and Louis Vuitton and, you know, Swatch Group all have to answer to shareholders, especially Richemont and Swatch Group. And it's very difficult to take something as big as an Omega or as big as a Longines. And I'm not faulting either of those. They make nice things. They've had some, they've had some strengths in re both recent and distant years. They've been strong over the years. But it's tough to turn a big ship around. Uh, which is why, you know, with Jeger Lecoult after Jerome Lambert left, you had this endless procession of administrators who brought nothing to the brand because uh, they, they took no chances. Lambert took Jeger Lecoult, which was kind of like a, I don't know, a stuffy old horology brand in the 90s. And in the 2000s, he took a lot of chances. He did things that were you know, priced at higher price points, but worth the money that were technically innovative, like the Amvox series, like the Master Compressor Extremes, you know, maybe not JLC's traditional design DNA, but let's try some new things. Master Compressor Extremes don't work out. Well, we've got the Master Compressors. Master Compressors may be too weird to be mainstream. Well, we've also got the Master Collection. And there was a lot of experimentation. There was pushing of the limits. We're going to make a $50,000 stainless steel tourbillon. Yes, $50,000 back in the 2000s when, you know, the going rate for a tourbillon was probably more than the going rate for a tourbillon today. Uh, and there was a lot of experimentation at the brand. And for a brief period, the, the formula that is typically applied to these things, find a French guy to run it from another industry, it actually worked for once. And I just told you that if you get some generic French executive to run a watch brand, it's not going to work. But it did. And I asked, well, what worked that time that was different from every other Richemont brand that didn't thrive? And I'm like, it's what you just said. It's the willingness to take risks. JLC tried so many different things in the 2000s, and a lot of it was not successful. 
the Reverso Squadras were a huge failure. They were supposed to be the ultimate man's Reverso. They wound up being the ladies' choice. Like, the last Squadras were just for women. Um, you know, they tried to build oversized sports watches. That wasn't really their DNA, but they made an effort at it. And out of that came a lot of cool ideas that were later repurposed elsewhere. Um, you know, there was innovation in the price of things. Like, the Torbion is one example, but there were others. Um, and And... It was a little bit like what you see at a Seiko or a Grand Seiko or a Citizen, where there was just a mess of a million different products and product lines, and out of the chaos came some success. And a lot of people who look back on JLC uh, look at the Jerome Lambert era as sort of a golden age and everything that came after as a struggle to rediscover the brand's identity. And at JLC, the identity is eclecticism, engineering, watchmaking, and while the stuff across the board didn't always look like it came from the same company. It was all really cool, and every year's novelties were really neat. Um, and it wasn't just the highest of the high horology stuff. The master compressors, the the GMT, the chronograph, the master compressor Memovox, uh, the master compressor Dualmatic, those were fairly accessible watches that were handmade, that were really appealing, that brought younger people into the brand and gave the company a reputation for audacity and innovation. And sometimes, yeah, they went too far. But it was very much the qualities you're ascribing to a lot of Japanese brands, but in a Swiss paradigm. And when it ended, and everything just became a super conservative, you know, vintage re-edition, all of a sudden we had tributes to everything. The Geophysic had to become a full model line. The Polaris had to become a full model line. Every Reverso was painfully classical. Although you could argue that was core JLC design DNA, it looked like JLC, but it didn't feel like JLC because there wasn't a lot of innovation. And I don't know, maybe that's a Swiss validation. It's the exception to the rule of everything you just ascribed to the Japanese. I mean, I think one of the financial realities that this all ends up at is if you want to do business in the watch industry, you have to do it because you want to make good products, you can't do it because you want to make money in the short term. Now, I know that sounds crazy because you're like, well, it's business. You have to make money. Well, yes and no. Some of the biggest successes in this industry have been by brands who literally don't care if they're making money or not or are uh, sort of a, a vanity um, you know, portfolio item on top of a lot of other boring companies that are making money. You just have to sort of sink money into producing something nice. The company is the structure required to actually assemble this thing. Yeah, you. I guess at the end of the day, maybe you want to make money. But I think a lot of the people who have had success have aimed more to making a good product, which ended up making money. But their goal wasn't, okay, everyone, let's start with a plan to make money. Like That never ends up in success in the watch industry. It's a more roundabout way of, of, of getting there. And because there's no sort of direct way of doing that, it's only for people that are in the position to just sink a bunch of money into it. Well, the, you get into a challenge similar to what General Motors used to face back in the 90s and 2000s before the bankruptcy. You've got a group of clients, and every time you want to know if your proposed new product is good, you go to them and you ask. And they say, of course, we love it. More of the same. And you wind up in a death spiral of reproducing the same stuff for an ever-shrinking audience. And, and that's how you get to say like where Breitling was before its buyout in 2017, where the watches just kept getting bigger and the polish kept getting brighter and the advertising kept getting, to be frank, more obnoxious. And eventually an intervention was necessary. Um, that's why sometimes experimenting, making things that aren't obvious money makers in the short term, that, that's really the way to go. And if you look at some of the best-run big brands, there is a little bit of a willingness to try things and fail. And, and I think that's essential. You've got to be able to try something that's a bit of a risk and then learn from a failure and, and accept that not everything is going to be a success. I mean, if you look at Rolex with Cellini, Rolex can do no wrong. And through many iterations of its dress watch, it's discovered that this is a lot harder than they expected. And the products have always been good, but the willingness to try different things has actually been a, a source of strength. And for now, the Cellini collection is very minimal, but I have no doubt that when it comes back, it will be an incredibly focused effort 
to try something different than what they've tried before. So the Cellini prints looked nothing like the 39mm round case Cellinis that came after, and I guarantee you whatever comes after this is going to be different again. Um, and, and I think it's that willingness to maybe accept a failure every once in a while that shows a company to be really self-possessed and imbued with great confidence. And I actually do see that in Rolex. I don't see it in a lot of companies that iterate the same stuff every year, and that might sound like the definition of Rolex to a T, but they're actually a little bit more ambitious than that. If you look at some of the things they do, every once in a while you get a very weird watch. You get a Deep Sea D-Blue. You get a Milgauss Z-Blue. You get a Cellini Prince with a rectangular case and a display case back and a manual wind movement. And there is a little bit of a weirdness in Rolex that comes across in watches like the old 116-900 Air King and a willingness, yeah, to rely on what's worked in the past, but also continuously put out some weird stuff every once in a while and accept the consequences. Well, Rolex has those people in-house, right? Rolex has all kinds of mentalities working at the company. Um, it's a consensus culture, so very little can get done without a lot of consensus. But Tim, you're absolutely correct that that pe those people that really want to push the envelope, um, you know, are at Rolex. And you know, while you're talking, I'm thinking about earlier what, what I said about having more enthusiasts be in managerial positions and things like that. And I'm I'm thinking to myself, why can't you marry the money in manufacturing of some of these big brands with the obvious success and momentum that we've seen in the small entrepreneurial space? You know, we've seen the sort of emergence of you know, the sort of small uh, brand, the, the enthusiast-driven brand over the last decade or so, this is a force to be reckoned with. Here's a bunch of people who are, are bootstrapping in many, most instances um, the production of watches that are oftentimes keeping them going from production run to production run. All this creative energy just waiting to be tapped, proving that they want to do this. Why isn't there more venture funds, you know, uh, from these big groups to help incubate and nurture some of these brands. There's so much antagonism. There's so much we want to get rid of them. There's so much we're not going to fund watch media because watch media is supporting them. There's so much desire to push them away. When isn't that where the next generation of talent to run the big brands maybe should be coming from? You know what I mean? Like I see that as being one of the most pointless wars. Well, Rolex is like General Electric before General Electric sucked. Uh, <laughs> Rolex brings up a lot Watch of out, internal Rolex. talent. Well, yeah, exactly. But here's the thing. What does General Electric have that Rolex doesn't have? Shareholders. So Rolex cultivates internal talent. It is a consensus culture. But you also get hugely expensive, weird-ass crap that makes no logical sense, like the Yacht Master 2. They come to market with the most complicated watch they've ever built, and they're like, we don't know if there's a market for this, but we're turning it out into the world. Do you love it? No? Okay, too bad. Oh, well. Rolex is a private, self-governing, self-contained management culture that brings up its own, promotes its own, and takes risks. And you don't have a whole lot of that elsewhere in the industry. There's a lot of headhunting from other brands, from other industries that have nothing to do with watches. And, you know, unfortunately, you've always got the shareholder looking over your, your shoulder. And, you know, your shareholder on your shoulder, it rhymes. You go to like a Richemont or a Swatch Group website, and it's not, if you go to the corporate website, it's not immediately obvious what they sell or where you can see it, but you see that tab up on the top of the toolbar, investor relations. Okay. So it's very difficult to think long-term when even as a CEO at best, you've got a 24-month length of rope to work with before I, you're expected. Ignore, ignore the shareholders. Just ignore them. The, sh the shareholders appoint the board, and the board appoints the leadership. That's the problem. Look, I get it, but it just turns into like the American political system where everyone just works to get elected. Okay. Yeah, or, or the American <laughs> business system. <laughs> I mean, the, the nightmare at, at every foreign-owned company is that like American owners will acquire them. Um, and it's amazing because you don't think of the Swiss being – you know, stereotypically American in terms of their culture, but a lot of their biggest watch brands are run that way. Um, so I would just say this, it's very difficult to give any kind of leadership creative free reign 
to see something through from start to finish, consequences be damned. And there's a lot of great leadership at the independent level because of a lot a lot of indies are either still private or or they have a very tight-knit and small group of shareholders who share the vision of the management. Um, and look, Patek Philippe is never in trouble because very few people there are looking to bail quickly or realize short-term gains to the exclusion of all else. Like, I wish I could say, you know, here's an example of a huge brand that's run beautifully like a private foundation or a family firm, but you never find it. The problem is you are creating artisanal products that should, at their best, be realizations of artistic instincts. And you're trying to mix that with business culture, and I don't think that works in any country. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blog to Watch store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. Buy your wristwatches elsewhere and celebrate the watch collecting hobby with high quality original products at the Blog to Watch store. Right now, the Blog to Watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at the Blog to Watch. Made from 100% premium cotton, our soft fitted t-shirts are stylish, fun, and models like our iconic diver dial even have a glow in the dark face. The Blog to Watch store carries bespoke yet affordable products, which the Blog to Watch editorial team wanted for themselves as the first customers. Visit the website to see what is available right now and we ship internationally with new products coming all the time. Check it out by logging on to store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. I think I realize one of your long-term uh, goals here. You want to be hired by Rolex. That would be good for you. I could see that. You see, here's the thing. I'm not one of theirs, so I don't think... But then again, Jean-Frédéric Dufour wasn't you either, was You gotta get he? in at some point. Come on. <laughs> no, no. I'm, I think that the best thing you can do is give long-term mandates to management. Make sure you recruit properly. People who have experience with watches and enthusiasm for watches and then give them the flexibility to work for a few years. It's very difficult to do that when the bottom line is the bottom line. And I, I would say that there are success stories, like some of the people who have run the Omega Tourbillon shop. We all know Omega has a shop where they make these Tourbillon watches and other high horology pieces that trickle out in very small volumes. Some of those people have gone on to work at some of the best independents to be lead watchmakers or lead engineers or designers and managers. Um, it, it's both a testament to the reality that you can raise great talent in a big organization and you can't retain it if there's a cultural mis mismatch. Um, so yeah, I think you just need to bring in people and give them a lot of creative control long term. Look, I don't love everything George Kern has ever done. I, I think he's definitely a guy who's been guilty of pandering and ego. But I would also say this. He came in with a long-term management from CVC Capital Partners to make Breitling a more appealing brand. And here we are, and we're it's five years later. And I'm not going to say that you don't still see Breitlings on the gray market or you don't still see closeouts at some gray market dealers, but there's a whole lot more interest in the brand and ability to sell the stuff through their retailers as opposed to the aftermarket. And a lot of that's down to Georges Kern just being able to chart a course for more than you know, 24, 36 months because things look really bad back in 2018 back when he had to launch the Navitimer 8s, which interested no one. And I'm totally convinced that this was a product that already existed when he showed up. And he had to go to the Brooklyn Navy Yard and all of these different special events around the world to roll out the first collection under new ownership. And they were just completely boring. And he did it with a straight face, stiff upper lip. But by later that year, you started to see the premieres. In 2019, you started to see the new Navitimers, and you started to see good vintage re-editions. And all of a sudden, you began to see that if you give a guy more than 15 minutes to turn a brand around, even if he's an egomaniac, even if the turnaround isn't perfect, taking someone who knows what he's doing and giving him flexibility and taking his head off the chopping block long enough to get results... Even if there are some setbacks along the way, that's the way to go. And that's one of the few cases where I've seen 
itinerant capital, like an equity company operating out of a financial capital like New York or London or Hong Kong, get into a watch brand and actually do it right. Because the alternative is you could have something like Caring that spends a combined 840 million Swiss francs on UN and GP. And in the last year before selling those properties, sees those properties turn like 50 million francs combined, basically just decimating the value of two historic brands because they had no patience and no competence and no one they were willing to trust long term to run those brands. So yeah, I'm going to say that that's a success story. That's a success story for venture capital and a big brand. It worked. Let's unpack some of that because again, I agree with everything you said there. Um, Definitely... One of the overriding themes here is that anyone who has a financial stake in this and thinks about things as an investor has to have more of a long-term vision. Five years, minimum. Minimum yes. five years. Uh, if you expect returns, anything before that, you're just unrealistic. Um, and George Kern with CVC is actually a very good marriage. Uh, he's, of course, personally quite vested in it. He's not just an employee. Um, and he's the top watch person there, right? Like in the entire room, the CVC people... Everyone's like, hey, George, you know watches the best because you come from that. So he, by default, has the authority to make all the watch decisions. And he, you know, I talked to him about this a couple of years ago. We actually talked about this exact topic where he made it clear to me that he had to sit down with the CVC people and say, you must have a long-term vision. I will deliver. You must have a long-term division. And he lamented how at Richemont, where he previously was, that entire culture of looking long-term had just been uh, destroyed and everything was on a quarter-to-quarter basis. And he, he said it, just, it, it doesn't work. So he was specially able to form a relationship with a, with a venture capitalist partner who uh, was able to give him the ability to spend and make his decisions and things like that. And what you see is proof that over a, long, uh, a longer period of time, a few years, he can do that. And again, he was able to make those decisions. He didn't have to go to people. He knew that he was spending a lot. I know for a fact that the entire collections that he has designed, he scrapped. So they spent money engineering entire things at the last minute he scrapped because George felt it just wasn't good enough for Breitling. Like he's, he's very focused on making sure that every product is a hit. And that's very interesting because he's spending a lot of money on experimenting. And you see that Breitling is very, very prolific, yet he's hyper-focused on making sure that everyone is a hit. And so he's doing both things. He's playing it safe, but also experimenting and spending a good amount of money in the process. Um, we actually had on, uh, it's, it hasn't aired yet, but we had the, the creative director of Breitling um, as a guest on the show. Um, and we talked a little bit about this. So that was very interesting that, to, to talk about this here and then um, get the story about George there. And again, I know, I know George, and he's a controversial guy, and um, he definitely um, has, has, has a, a very, a very uh, distinctive ego, but he's good for this industry. He's the type of personality. There needs to be more people like George, um, uh, and, and they need to be listened to more. And even Bever, for years, just sort of lamented the fact that people celebrated him as a business leader, but routinely, routinely just kind of completely disregarded his business advice. He would tell brands, he would scream at them, do this. And they'd be like, oh, Bever, you're so great. And then just go do nothing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, look, like you said, George Kern's a bit of a quirky guy, but look, if you walk the walk, you can talk the talk, and he's delivered results, and he's done it twice, and he's, you could argue he's been doing it for 20 years. So, yeah, I, I think that's a good example of how things can go well. He is a substantial equity holder in Breitling. Like you said, he's got, he's got a stake in this. He's not just a hired gun. Um, but he's also got performance bonuses, and he knows that he doesn't get the full value of what he's owed unless he performs. Uh, so, you know, he's he's invested in this long term. And I, I said at the beginning that really the owner needs to be like the driving creative force behind a brand. And he sort of is that not majority, but he has a big chunk. Um, and, yeah, that's that's a great example of how things can go right. We talked a lot about how things can go wrong. Um, unfortunately, for every like CVC, George Kerr and Breitling, there's a lot of carings in, you know, UNGP. Now. Let's let's just shift uh, a little bit because I think it's great to have these industry talks. I mean, I, look, I want yeah, yeah. people in the industry who do listen to the show um, to use this as a resource to to help a little bit. You know, like 
I'm not saying that I that we are the the end word on anything. But Tim and I are tinkerers. We're curious about how things work, be it watches or the industry. And we look about what's successful and what isn't. We have an opinion on it because we obviously want the best for the industry. None of us have like any nefarious, you know, um, incentives here. We just want a, a thriving industry that that's making more and more money, right? And we're basically saying like, hey, that's a that's a good decision over there. You might want to look into that rather than that that thing that you're trying to do that doesn't make sense. We see a bigger picture. Um, okay, so speaking of big picture, we you know, and we we love to complain. I feel like you need more outlets to complain. That's a problem. You know, at Watchbox, you don't have enough outlets to complain. But there's too many auction houses. So many auction houses now. How did this happen? Well, people tend to emulate what they think success looks like. And so we wound up with a bunch of people. I mean, it's a bunch of things. There's a lot of online auction houses now. You still have the big ones, but you know, for example, exist. You know, example, um, you know, the Phillips Bax and Russo auctions. It's like a franchise now. Um, if if you've had prior success with auctions, you split off and you go freelance. Or if you know you want to put a more respectable veneer on online watch sales, you start auctioning watches online. Now you're an auction house. That's respectable. Um, Again, it's a lot of it's down to mainstream media attention given to watch auctions. It can be tough for a niche hobby to break through to the mainstream. And oftentimes, the only time it does is in cases of extraordinary thefts or really big auction yields. And, you know, a while back, we wondered why back in 2010 to 2015, everyone was suddenly a vintage dealer. And it was because of the vintage watch phenomenon at auction. And people then went a step further and decided, well, I'm going to be an auction house myself. So from dealer to vintage dealer to auction house, uh, it's basically just chasing a trend. And especially online with the software available, it's an easy thing to quickly unpack. But they feel like meth labs. They kind of are. I mean, look, here's <laughs> the thing. In, in, in the world of the law, there's something called racketeering, Okay. And I think that if you did a uh, uh, an analysis into a lot of these auction houses, many of them would be guilty of fraud, racketeering fraud, okay? Uh, there's these confederacies of people who sort of bid and decide to bid against one another and hope that like an actual legitimate bidder comes in. There's there's, you know, in terms of, of the stories behind the products themselves, where they come from, their legitimacy, their authenticity, there's a dozen different ways. And then at the end of the day, even if they are a legit operation, selling a watch that way or buying a watch that way is like the most expensive. The whole point of an auction was supposed to be a way of getting a one-of-a-kind thing, which doesn't really have an established market value, and auctioning is really the only way of, of selling it, or it's become like a hyped-up thing, right? It was supposed to be the cheaper way of getting something, and it's become the most expensive way. It, it's like they've introduced elements of gamification and gambling and partying and like everything aside from like buying something at a good value. <laughs> like when I, when growing up thinking of auctions, you thought of this like relatively boring event where you have to go and, and yes, there's good deals, but you have to sit through a lot of like nonsense. Like now auction houses and auction events have become um, some type of like entertainment um, it's sort of a hobby for uh, spectators. It's it's become something very different than wristwatch appreciation, which is what I'm into. And I feel like it's it, it's a taint <laughs> on the hobby, right? Like not a good yeah. thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it it reduces the hobby to one dimension, which is price, and it, it's basically a provocative spectacle with price as the draw. You know, it's like when you go to a baseball game, there are many different ways to appreciate the game. Whereas if the hobby is like baseball, if the watch hobby is like baseball, then auctions are like the home run derby, which is the sport reduced to one spectacular titillating sight. One huge, I would say, guilty pleasure corruption it, it distilled into one event. The auction is the home run derby. It takes everything you love about the game of baseball, mostly discards it, and turns it almost into a caricature of itself. 
And that's sort of what you got with the watch auction. Now, obviously, not every watch auction sells a $17 million Paul Newman Daytona. But I think that has sort of inspired everyone who operates at a lower level to get involved in hope, not that they could sell that watch, but they could get a piece of the gate. And I will also say this, the standard of representation and warranty given at an auction is so much lower than what you get at a reputable dealer. Here at Watchbox, we back everything with a two-year warranty. This thing has to go, every watch that comes in has to go through watchmakers that we hire who work here full-time. It costs a fortune. If a Patek Philippe needs a service, we're not doing that here. We're honoring our warranty, but we're sending it back to Geneva. You have to photograph everything perfectly from 20 different angles. It needs to be absolutely spotless. You need to offer a seven-day no-questions-asked return policy. When you buy something at an auction, you're lucky if that crap runs. There have been stolen watches, counterfeit watches, franken watches, watches that haven't run in 50 years and never will run again, with no warranties expressed or implied and no right of return unless the watch can be proven stolen, sometimes even not then. So an auction is a really easy way of moving inventory with any of the after-sales or pre-sales financial commitments and service commitments that a real dealer needs to make. All right, so let me let me try to take the other side for a second. And again, sure. personally, I'm firmly on your side. And to be honest, I think that auction houses are just a series of scandals waiting to erupt. It's just a matter of time. I don't know what it's going to be, but there's so many people behind the scenes who are afraid to speak. Like, I'm not saying it's our Harvey Weinstein, but it's sort of our Harvey Weinstein, Okay. Okay. Like okay. It, it, it kind of is. But let me just sort of put myself in the position of someone um, at an auction house. And, and both you and I have known actually a lot of very lovely people that um, currently work at auction houses or have worked at auction houses. Um, just because it's sort of a bad business concept, in our opinion, doesn't mean that it's it's employed by just bad people. There's some bad people there for sure. But there are. And again, I want to defend a lot of the very smart people and good people uh, that, that, that work in that industry right now because there's a lot of good, well-meaning people that have come out of it and they're in there now. They will say this, um, A, well, someone's got to do it. And to a degree, there's a point. There's all these like, you know, basically like unwanted luxury goods or items that need to be sold, estates and things like that. And they're like, someone's got to go ahead and, and put these lots together and sell it. It's a lot of work to get consumer attention. Like, you know, like somewhat like the, like this other this stuff would otherwise go unsold. And, and, and that's sort of true that there is a market demand. And they also say that... Um, you know, the demographic that we're going after, the very wealthy people, is not a particularly high-risk demographic or very susceptible. Um, you know, they're rich and they can sort of take it. And so society sort of places a low level of importance. So while they are engaging in a lot of stuff that probably isn't good, um, because it's not, again, sort of like a, a high-risk level demographic, um, we sort of allow it. We feel like, oh, th these are these are rich people, a lot of disposable income, you know, you know, it's caveat emptor all day long. And, 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 I, and, I, and I know that society is sensitive to that notion. I disagree with it, though, because um, you're actually also uh, dealing with people who make a lot of decisions. These are business people. They feel screwed. They get angry. A lot of people get angry at the watch industry um, because of these unscrupulous uh, watch transactions that they've been through. And I know a lot of people get turned off. And I feel that um, that's that's something that's, that's easy to avoid, right? Just giving, you know, like when people buy from Watchbox, for example, and, and other few outfits out, out there like you guys, one of the consistent themes is I feel taken care of. I had a person I could speak to. They worked with me, you know, like if, if a little negotiation. Uh, I never hear like, oh, they totally screwed me and disappeared, i.e. auction house. Yeah. There is, <laughs> and, and the prices that you're going to get from a Watchbox more often than not, are going to be much lower than in an auction house. Like, yeah, you don't get the experience of like showing all your buddies that you bid, like some type of weird pissing contest thing. Yeah, yeah. I guess you can't offer that when you're buying a watch at a good price in private. Okay, sorry. Can't show off to your buddies. But pretty <laughs> much that, there's, I, again, just I finally want to say, I can't sure. think of any reason most of the time to buy a watch at auction. Once in a while, there's that super rare thing that's going to go for some inflated price. And if you're a museum, buy it. But like more often than not, why would you buy watches this way? The only reason I would buy a watch at auction, to be perfectly honest, is to like plunder 
the back catalog of some of the Hong Kong auctions where some 1990s 34-millimeter minute-repeating automatic platinum blanc pad dress watch will come up. And For a good price. Have, yeah, it'll have a low estimate of like $23,000 and, you know, <laughs> it'll barely make the low estimate or it won't make it. I want to be there to pick those bones because to me that good watch prices. is cool. prices, yes. That, yeah, I that, will run. Fun. I will travel to a different country for the opportunity to buy watches that and again, they're they're happy with those prices, right? They're they're happy. That's what it costs them. That's the thing. It's like we don't we're not trying to screw people, but just because someone across the ocean bought a watch for a hundred thousand dollars and needs to sell it for a hundred and ten thousand to make money doesn't mean that someone else who bought it for twenty thousand would be happy with thirty thousand. Like that's the beauty of the open market. Is that everyone who owns it? is willing to sell it at a different price. And the sort of notion of market value doesn't help anyone except the, the transaction leaders, the merchants. If you own inventory, if it's your own watch or if you're a dealer, you know what you bought it for and you know what you must sell it for for a profit. This sort of ambiguous notion of market value is dumb. It, all it says is, hey, contribute to inflation and charge more than you need. Yeah, I mean, the problem is with, with auctions... Look, if you find that one thing you really want and the price is right, sometimes you don't care how you get it. Sometimes if a watch is rare enough, it might be the only opportunity. But at the end of the day, I like the human element of this 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 hobby. I do like to be able to talk to a person before I buy a watch um, and also have a follow-up once I bought the watch. You go to an auction and you'll see a watch that you know is going to sell for millions and you're lucky if you get maybe three photos. Like literally – the most janky amateur YouTube account selling used watches understands you owe people a decent suite of like iPhone 13 photos with good clarity. So there's nothing that's appealing to me about auction houses. I think the only reason they persist is because the auction houses see a quick route to money with a minimal commitment to pre and post customer service. So they don't put any money into the watch before and they don't put any money into the watch after. So there's money to be made. And it's easier than being a dealer. And second, I think there is the kind of person who just wants to be known as the guy who bought the watch that made the headline or just bragged to his friends at the office. Um, we're almost out of time here. Um, one more question or line of questions for you, and then we got to go. But I just want to say, you know, on our next show, I'm sure we'll be sharing our thoughts on auction houses as well. Again, it's, it's a bit of a thorn. They, they they just they they only help themselves. There's really no other element of the watch industry they seem to help but themselves. But anyways, um, okay. So Tim, last time we chatted, um, you were talking about pursuing watchmaking, at least from sort of like a, a hobbyist element. How has that been going? What have you learned lately about watches and watchmaking that you didn't know before? Oh well, it's going really well. I have only so much time to work after. I go home from my regular job. I do want to eventually get up to a certification, so I want to take it beyond the hobby point, but that's where you got to start. So for me, you know, like big four movements, things you're going to see a lot of, things that are based on 2892, 2824, 6498, and 7750, I'm pretty proficient with those. And at this point, as long as they don't need like remanufacturing of parts or, you know, like balance staff replacement. I'm, I'm pretty competent on that front. The thing that I've spent a lot of time on because A, it's hard to get raw materials to do this and B, it's probably more challenging than working on the movements themselves, at least basic movements, but dial reassembly. It's, I'm fortunate we get like waves of counterfeit watches here at Watchbox. So we've got a whole bunch of junk that I can subject to surgery in good conscience and I've been, you know, working a lot on dial disassembly, dial reassembly, and it's unforgiving. You need to use both hands. You need to have a tool in both hands at every point in the process. You need to have things really well anchored. You have to make sure the environment is completely devoid of dust. You, you need incredible attention to detail. You work with parts that are rhodium plated, you know, to the thickness of maybe a few microns and scratch if you look at them. So to me... There's more to watchmaking than just being able to service and regulate movements. Every step is the most important step with watchmaking, and you really get a sense of that with dial disassembly and dial reassembly, especially um, once you've made that commitment to put hands on and they're polished metallic hands. 
You got to recase and make sure you don't let any specks of dust get in there, any errant marks. You can easily find movement parts. It's a lot harder to find a lot of dial parts for watches because um, they're not as standardized. So that's what I've learned. Uh, just attention to detail with dial servicing and how careful you have to be with the most delicate parts of the watch, the parts you actually see with your eyes. Yeah, it's funny how, you know, people don't realize how unforgiving these things are, how you can easily damage it, that that's actually a big part of a watchmaker's role is to steadily handle these parts, not just assemble it, but do it in a way where everything is able to be beautific and, you know, maintain finishing. Scratches is a very real issue. Um, and on dials, you know, extremely thin paints and, and, and textures and things like that, that just uh, scraping something gently yes. uh, is is really, really a, a challenge. Okay, well, I look forward to um, hearing about more <laughs> next time. Uh, hopefully, we'll be in the same city together. Uh, Tim, we're going to continue to make this a regular thing. Just before we go, anything you want to plug, just remind everyone where they can find your work and learn more about you. Yeah, definitely. Check out Watchbox Reviews. It is my 5,000 watch searchable video encyclopedia and meet me on Instagram, Tim underscore Masso. I do 60 second video reviews of some of the coolest inventory we've got here at Watchbox. Thanks everyone for listening to this episode of the Superlative Podcast. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks, Tim. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit blog2watch.com. <laughs>